0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmyra.ca. If you have a Bible or a phone, let me encourage you to turn to Mark chapter four. And uh, I don't know if you have ever been in a a storm before. We're talking about a story of a of a ship and a storm. Um, I know some of you have actually been to Zambia uh, to a project where we went as a church, uh, Woodside, and the project was on Mbabala Island, which was this small, thin sliver of an island. And to get to that place, you actually have to get onto a boat and go for, man, I forget how long it was, depends on how loaded down the boat was, hours, on the boat to get to this place I don't get seasick on boats normally uh, I have before but not normally but one of the nights that we were actually going to Mbabala Island is a little over 2 years ago the wind was blowing and the the waves were getting bigger and it wouldn't classify it as a storm yet but it was getting close to that okay And the thing that you need to remember about this lake that you cross to get to Mbabala Island is that it's also filled with crocodiles, okay? It sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? Like you're crossing this lake in this open boat and the waves are big and you're looking down and you can't see anything, but you know that this lake is actually filled with crocs that have eaten people before. And so as we were moving along on this lake, getting closer and closer, the sun was setting. And because we were so weighed down with all kinds of luggage and all kinds of lumber and everything, the trip was taking longer than anticipated. And we were fighting against the wind itself. And so it was taking longer and longer. And eventually it got to where it was almost pitch black. And the only way that we could actually see where we were going was there was one guy on the beach with his phone and the flashlight app on waving it like this that was our target that's where we're going and you couldn't really see it that well okay so i'm trying to build the story here but it, this is i'm describing it as real as i possibly can okay and in that moment here's what was going through my mind why am i scared should i be scared in this moment I may have even thought to myself, I'm like a pastor. Am I supposed to be scared of moments like this? But I'll tell you what the the reality was, was I was getting scared and I was getting nervous. And I think I even looked Kelly in the eye a few times as she was on that boat. And she probably could read my eyes saying like, I'm a little nervous. Are we going to actually make it to the shore? And we did because I'm still standing here. Okay, we didn't sink and we weren't eaten by crocodiles. But this story today, the story of Jesus calming the storm, is a story about a storm itself. But life as we live it and as we journey through it is filled with storms. It's filled with all kinds of moments and experiences where we might wonder to ourselves, are we supposed to be afraid of something in this moment? Or as a Christian, am I, am I supposed to be secure in this moment? How am I supposed to respond when this storm is happening around me, when darkness is getting darker, when the shore is maybe only lit by one tiny little light? What am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to say? And in our text this morning, we're going to look and we're going to see from Jesus' own life and from the experience Maybe an insight into what we are called to do as believers in the context of a storm. So let's begin again by reading the first few verses here, starting in verse 35, where we get introduced to the storm itself. Verse 35 starts this way. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So here we are, introduced to this story and the story of Mark is really just like a capturing of events. We've been saying this every week. It is a snapshot of what's going on in the life of the disciples, in the life of Jesus. If it was modern day, it would be, um, you know, reels or uh, the story on your Instagram feed. Or maybe if you're going back a little bit more in time, it's photographs that, that Mark is capturing or home videos. Maybe it's Christmas and you're going to pull out some of those home videos. Or maybe you've seen your grandparents like pull out a slideshow or something. Okay, Mark is trying to capture moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. And here we see it's just so plain. He gets into a boat. It's just like a regular boat that carried maybe a dozen people, fishermen that would go out into the lake. And there's a bunch of them, it says, that are going out there. And you can see actually exactly what a boat like this would have looked like. I didn't include a picture of it, but in 1986, um, in Israel on the Sea of Galilee, they actually found a boat that they date to be around like 50 BC to, you know, 40, 50 AD. So a boat that would have been in service, probably, during the life of Jesus. Just kind of a plain, regular, open boat, okay, to go out onto the sea. And what we see is that they go out, the disciples go out. Jesus says, let's get into this boat and let's go across to the other side. And from their perspective, it's going to be a normal kind of trip across the lake. Everybody's going to get in. And they're used to, in that time, just reading like the horizon, okay? We are used to the weather app, maybe use the weather app, or radar, or news, where you kind of see what's coming. We anticipate, you know, in two or three days, this is what the weather's going to be like, and we can see on the radar exactly what's coming, but these guys are just looking at the weather. They're looking at the sun, the way it's setting. They're looking at the clouds, and the Sea of Galilee is this interesting place. I remember um, a few weeks ago, I think when Harold was speaking, he showed us pictures of the Sea of Galilee from their trip. It's this kind of largish lake. And what's interesting about that lake itself is there is a contrast in elevation. Okay, so just not too far to the north is Mount Hermon, which is around 9,000 plus feet. And you've got cold air up there, you've got snow, you can even go skiing there at times in Israel. And then down by the lake. By the Sea of Galilee, it's around like 700 feet above sea level. So you've got this massive contrast of really high mountain and low level sea. And what ends up happening is cold air rushes off the mountains and down the ravines. If you look at like the typography of the land, you can see that it kind of all flows in there. This cold air comes rushing in, mixes with the warm air. And really quickly, violent storms can produce. Violent storms can come up. So these guys got in a regular boat on a regular evening and they go out into the sea and suddenly this massive storm is whipped up. It's a huge storm. It just takes them right off guard. And maybe they had experienced it before, but here they were in the moment and it caught them. And, And one of the things that is interesting about this story. And uh, if, you're a, um, if you're a Bible underliner or a highlighter, these are actually three words that I had underlined in my Bible beforehand because they are words that stand out to me. And it's the first three words of the story itself. On that day. On that day. Those are actually really important words because they remind us that what Mark is is writing down here for us to see is the regular happenings of Jesus's life and ministry with the disciples around him now his day was full if you remember if you've been here for the last few weeks you can just scan back over chapter 3 and over chapter 4 and you can see that there's been a lot that's been going on and from the writing style of mark it seems like all of those things are happening in one day and whether or not they literally all happened in one day, not, like there could be some like division on that. But basically, Mark is trying to say, this is the kind of stuff that happened to Jesus on a regular day. It was a day filled with all kinds of stuff. Jesus is out working. He is doing healings. And he is seeing people. He's also, if you remember, he was challenged by religious leaders. They're coming to him, questioning him, seeing whether his... His message is true, or who he is, trying to figure him out. And then he's out there, he's teaching, you know, these parables to people, and he's interacting with all kinds of people. And his family is coming, and his family's like, man, we've got to rescue him. He's going a little bonkers here, we've got to get him out. And so his village comes, and then his immediate brothers and sisters come along, and they're trying to get him away from what he's doing, trying to protect him. All this is going on in a regular day for Jesus. And the reason why on that day is so important is because it's a regular day for him. It's a common day for him. Now it might make more sense to us if we phrase it like this, Jesus had problems at work. Jesus had problems with his family. Jesus went to work and things actually went well that day. He was able to do some teaching. And what you see here is that Jesus faces this day like it's any other day. And it's on that day that the storm hits. On that day. The storms of life, most of the storms, even for you and I, they come on that day. Whether or not you're prepared for them, whether or not you like them, they come on that day. Now listen, you might be able to prepare for a certain storm that comes into your life. You might know mentally that something's happening. Like if you go on a road trip, you know that maybe you're going to get a flat tire. And so you're kind of mentally prepared. You're like, we're going all in. We're going to get a CAA membership. We're going to make sure the spare tire is set. But until that tire is flat, it's still just theoretical. You may know that if you go on a trip, remember we used to do that, go on planes and like load up luggage. You go on a trip, there's the potential that your luggage could get lost. You know that, you're like, yep, that could totally happen. And you would like laugh about it beforehand. But until that luggage is lost, until that day actually arrives, your preparation is not like a reality. You may know even that in your family history, there's some sort of sickness that like almost everybody gets. Like maybe you're like in my family, there's cancer in your family history. And you know that. And you're like, I'm mentally prepared. I know that could come. That's totally possible. You're talking about it. You're talking about it. But until that day comes, are you really prepared? On that day is when the storm comes. The regular day, the things that are happening, the work goes on, but yet on that day it comes. And the response of the disciples, whether or not this was their first storm or not, is a response that probably we should be familiar with. And there's only a few that are recorded in the text here, but like, what would your response be? The response, maybe, verse 35 isn't a response, but it's a little clue from Mark when it says there that. Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Man, the disciples could have been like, you know what? This was your idea, Jesus. You told us to go to the other side. What kind of an idea was that? Pointing the finger at Jesus. Or maybe a better response or maybe a more accurate response would have been in 38. Verse 38 says, they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In the moment when the storm is upon us, pointing the finger at Jesus, or maybe thinking that Jesus doesn't really care about us, that he's indifferent, that he's actually just causing this thing to happen so that we can suffer, like somehow trying to figure out what should we do in this moment. Peter was there in the boat, and Peter was an experienced fisherman. And later when he writes his own epistle, First Peter, we get a little glimpse into what Peter learned on that boat. In chapter 4, it's actually a whole chapter talking about suffering and specifically about suffering persecution for standing for their faith. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 12, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Then verse 14, he says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, so there's the context for the suffering, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then verse 19 is his summary of what he's saying there. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator who's doing good. Peter says, listen, this is what, this is the perspective of someone who's experienced a storm, a real storm. And now he's trying to put it onto their storm of persecution and say, here's how you are to respond. Don't be surprised by it, but in the midst of it, see what God is actually doing, that there's purpose behind this. Because in the storm, mostly we're kind of not sure what to do. Rembrandt, who is a famous painter, painted a painting called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And maybe you've seen this painting before. Not in person because it was stolen in 1990 and nobody's seen it, okay? So it's it's either destroyed or it's in somebody's basement. Who knows where it is? But Rembrandt painted this painting of the Sea of Galilee and the storm. And it helps to kind of picture... What maybe it would have looked like. But the interesting thing about this painting is when you zoom in and really look at it, you begin to see the responses of the different disciples. They're all different. Some of them are trying to, in the moment, like salvage this sailing trip. You know, they're pulling on the ropes and they're trying to get the sail right. They're trying to figure out how do we solve the problem. Others are looking to Jesus and they've woken him up and they're trying to ask him for help some sort. Others are like this guy in the red up here. They're just hanging over, vomiting, right? It's been said that this disciple right in the middle who's holding his hat and looking straight out is a picture of Rembrandt himself who often included himself in the painting. Looking out... Asking the audience, asking the viewer, who are you? And the beauty of this painting is that you can look at it and you can see that each one of us in the storm responds to God in a different way. We respond to the storm around us in various ways. And so as the storm comes upon the disciples, the question is, and the question for us maybe to ask, if we were like Rembrandt, in the boat with the disciples, how do we respond when the storms of life come? Because they do come. And the longer you live, the more storms you experience. This brings us to verse 39. The calm after the storm. Verse 39 says this, And he awoke, and rebuked the wind and the sea. And said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus in that moment calms the storm. We've all heard this story before and, and we Love the fact that he calmed the storm. He didn't just let it rage on and on and on. He actually calmed the storm. But what Jesus does here is he actually uses his words to calm the storm. Something that none of us can do and none of us has ever seen before. Jesus speaks to the storm and it's calmed. The storm is calmed and if you look at the text, the waves are calmed. It is a tranquility that comes on this state of chaos and difficulty that's around them. Jesus uses his words, and one thing we discover in the pages of scripture is that when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things happen. Primarily for us, our experience is that God uses his word, the word of God itself, which 1 Timothy describes as God breathed Hebrews describes it as uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God has the ability to speak into our lives at levels that nothing else can. When we hear it read, when we hear it preached, when we hear it in different contexts, when we read it, we suddenly, as, as Christians, experience this inner piercing, as Hebrew would call it, for our good It is not like some other sacred texts where you can take the text itself and use it in some way. I know of other religions who take, you know, you could take a piece of paper and rip it out and use the sacred text and and tie it to your body for safekeeping. Or maybe it's written onto a tablet and it's washed into a bowl and you can bathe in it or you can drink it. Okay, the the Word of God is not mystical and magical in that way. You can take this Bible. I know... this always gets some Christians, you could take this Bible and you could recycle it. It's paper. That's all it is. But yet at the same time, it's not something we bathe in as a sacred, mystical item. But it's not holy that we worship it and revere it and it can never be destroyed. But it is the word of God that does something, that actually has power to speak into your life. It actually has the ability to change things. And in this moment in the text here, it has the ability to calm the sea and to calm the storm. The Word of God. But also we see the Word of God is Christ himself. It's Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, verses that many people are familiar with, says this. In the beginning was the Word— And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John begins his gospel by saying, this is who Jesus is. He is the Word of God. He was there at the beginning. He was the creative force behind creation. Then in Colossians, Apostle Paul picks this same theme up and says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, that's Jesus, and in him and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." This is what the disciples are beginning to see, that in the calm after the storm, that Jesus actually, through his word, is the one who's creator and sustainer and the one who holds everything together. What else do you want to hear in a storm? Other than you are close to the one who holds everything together, the one who controls the calm And the way that he does it, if you look at the the text here, is that he rebukes. Look at verse 39. He awoke and he rebuked the wind. Jesus rebukes the wind. Tim Keller puts it this way. By his actions, here, Jesus is demonstrating, I am not just someone who has power. I am power itself. Anyone and anything in the whole universe that has any power has it on loan from me. That's what Jesus is saying when he's rebuking the storm. Jesus is saying, listen, disciples, and this is what Mark is trying to capture for us. He is the kingdom of God. The essence of him is God's kingdom. And when he's come, every once in a while, he pulls back the curtain and shows them, this is who I am. I am ultimate power. And so the chaos of the world around the evil of the world around, Jesus, every once in a while, unveils himself and he says, the kingdom of God is over that. And his hand pushes it back. And so in the storm, even though it sounds like it, Jesus is not saying to them, this shouldn't be hard for you. Jesus is not saying to the disciples that, You shouldn't be thinking what you're thinking. You shouldn't be hanging over the edge vomiting. When he says in the text the question, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? in verse 40, what he's saying is that in the moment here, disciples, in this moment of storm, what you're letting creep into your mind is this statement that in storms, The kingdom of God is not present. And what Jesus has to say to us today, in our storms, whatever they may be, they come in all kinds of variety. What he's trying to say is that in the storms of your life, the kingdom of God is still moving forward. In the storms of your life, God, through Jesus Christ, is still king in the kingdom of God, evil is still rebuked. Because in our minds, we let in, we let it creep into our minds. Usually it's the battle of the mind for us. We let creep into our mind that in this moment of difficulty and struggle, in this storm, there can't be Jesus in here. And we begin to believe that lie, that Jesus can't be present in this storm. And yet he is. He is There, he is in the storm with us. Which brings us to the end here, verse 41, where the disciples reveal what's going on in their heads. Verse 41 says this, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? I don't know if you remember, um, maybe this was a couple years ago, there was like these Pepsi commercials with, I think the guy was called Uncle Drew. I don't know if you remember those ones where this basketball player, professional basketball player would dress up in like an old man's like jogging outfit and he would dye his hair and they'd put on like these fake wrinkles all over his face and he'd kind of hobble up to the basketball court and he'd be like, hey, can I play with you guys? And they would kind of laugh and then out would come like the NBA star, right? Grandpa suddenly is doing like a slam dunk and then everybody's blown away because they didn't know there was a professional NBA player. And they're wondering like, who is this guy? Till eventually he takes the mask off, okay? Now, Jesus is not Uncle Drew, okay? That's not what I'm trying to say here, okay? But the disciples are having a moment here, like I said, where the curtain is being pulled back a little bit. And Jesus is actually letting them see who he really is. There are moments throughout the Gospels where he does that, where he reveals a little bit about himself because he's set it aside to become incarnate, to become man. But yet he keeps giving little glimpses. And so Mark's invitation here is for us, the reader also, to get a glimpse of Jesus. But here's the reality, and this is like a summarizing statement for all of us. You and I, are far more attuned to God when we suffer than when things are going well. I'll say it again because most of us either don't like it or don't fully believe it. But you and I are far more attuned to God when we suffer than when things are going well. Last week, I I picked up a friend at the hospital who had broken his ankle And I don't know if you can feel your ankle right now. Probably not, right? You haven't even thought about your ankle at all, hopefully, since I've been talking, okay? Because you just don't feel it. But my friend, as he was slowly like hobbling into the car, every little fiber in his body was telling him, your ankle is broken. And every time he like bumped it up against the car or something, it was just like a wince of pain. Your ankle is broken. Your body is screaming. Your ankle is broken, That's what storms do. That's what difficulty does. That's what suffering actually produces. A awareness. A preparedness that regular life cannot produce. A sensitivity to what God is doing around you through the pain and the suffering. We wish it wasn't so, but it is the reality. Because of the storm, the disciples were keenly aware of the question of who Jesus is. It is the question that is on the tip of their tongues. Who is this then? Who is this? And no doubt, as good Jewish men, Jewish boys growing up, Old Testament echoes would have been bouncing in their head. Stories of like, what God was like in the Old Testament would have been like forefront on their mind. And a text that maybe would have come to their head, which I had not even noticed this week until I started studying, was a text from Psalm 107. And one of them at least would have thought of this text as they were going through the storm and as it was calmed. Listen to these words in Psalm 107, starting in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. When they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 32 says, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The world around us would just say the storms of life, the difficulties around us are just nature itself. Right? If evolution is all that we have, then all the things that come into our lives are just Kind of random atoms colliding together to produce storms, to produce difficulties, to alter your DNA, to cause the accident. Whatever it is, it is it's it is—it's cold nature. That's all it is. And maybe those thoughts, even pre-scientific age, came into the mind of the disciples. God, who knows what God is doing here? It's just nature taking its course. And Psalm 107 reminds us that in the middle of the storm, actually, Where our minds should be drawn to is verse 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. The storm is not cold. The storm is not anonymous. The storm actually is completely enveloped by love as a believer, as a Christian. Once again, to go back to Tim Tim Keller, he says this. If you're at the mercy of the storm... Its power is unmanageable and it doesn't love you. The only place you're safe is in the will of God. But because he's God and you're not, the will of God is necessarily, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he is up to. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. Who said anything about being safe? But he's good. He's the king. The disciples, when they experience this amazing provision, you'd think the fear would just melt away, but actually they're more afraid. They were afraid when the storm was going on, but now that there's no storm anymore, what actually makes them afraid? Who is this, man? Who is this? Who said anything about fear completely drifting away? We turn fear then into love, when we learn more and more about who Jesus is. And as we kind of end our Roman series here and take like a few weeks off to think about the Christmas season, we are left with this beautiful image of Jesus being with the disciples in the storm and in the calm. And C.S. Lewis uh, wrote his story in a book called Surprised by Joy. I don't know if any of you have read that story before, but it's a fascinating story where he records all the different storms of his life. He talks about the loss of his father, and he talks about the death of his mother, and he talks about you know, the snobbery of life at Oxford University and all that that kind of included. And he talked about World War I and all the horrors that came with the war. And ultimately, in his room in Oxford in 1929, he gives his life to Jesus. And he writes this He says, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. He gave his life. After all the tragedy, after all the storms, after all the difficulty, he ultimately, even reluctantly, gave his life. And for you sitting there, I don't know if everybody is a believer. I don't know where you're at with God and your journey with him. But the calling for you today, if you're investigating, if you're wondering, if you're still unsure of who then is this, the calling is to bend your knee. To put your trust and your hope in Jesus. As the disciples did, as C.S. Lewis did. And for those of us who are believers, who come to this story having bent our knee to Christ we are reminded in this Christmas season of the longing for Emmanuel. And in the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, one of the verses goes like this, O come, thou dayspring, come, and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. And our response to that is Amen. We all want that to happen. But the response in the song is actually fitting. It says, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, God with us, shall come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for the storms, Lord. As much as we don't want them. We know that we need them, Lord. And God, I just pray today for for each one, no matter what we're going through, that you would show us again that you are not just the calmer of storms, but that you are in the storm with us. Even when it's raging, you are with us. And someday you will rebuke the storm completely. And we will be in your presence, every tear wiped away, worshiping our Savior Jesus.